Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, we will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce our moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop for caregivers, practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer, and this is part two of Living with Lung Cancer. And today's program is being uh, offered in collaboration with the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and you'll be hearing more about the Longevity Foundation during the program, but they've been instrumental in both planning and also um, in helping to promote this program as well. So, um, And um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, Pfizer, and Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have a lot of you on the program today, and it's really because of your interest in the program and because of all the different organizations that collaborate with us and, of course, the Longevity Foundation as well. So we have over 322 participants on the call today. So there's lots of you from all the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from uh, Canada, Croatia, Egypt, India, Iraq, Israel, Laos, Poland, the UK, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and it's a really credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. I also want to remind all of you that this month of November is both Caregiver Awareness Month and also Lung Cancer Awareness Month. So um, this has never happened before. We've had two that, that, that we've done a program in which um, no, in which the month we're doing the program is is really highlighting the needs of both people living with lung cancer and their caregivers as well. Now, before we actually uh, start the program, I actually am going to be asking you a few questions. And so I'm going to start with the first question. There'll just be a few questions. It doesn't won't take very long um, for you to respond to them. Uh, for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and be able to respond. I understand the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team in the context of COVID-19 and if a choice of either yes or no. And then second question is, I know what research tells us about caregivers. I know what research tells us about caregivers, yes or no. The next question, this is one more after that. I understand the challenges of managing family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19, including social distancing and wearing masks. Yes or no? And then one final question. 
I know the self-care tips to cope with the stresses of caregiving, yes or no. And I want to thank each of you for participating um, in the questions. It's really helpful for us to know what you know coming into the program. And now um, I'm going to introduce our first speaker for today. And our first speaker is Dr. Erin Kent. Dr. Kent is Associate Professor, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Department of Health Policy and Management, Gilling School of Public Health, and full member UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kent will be addressing deciding to become a caregiver, what research tells us about caregivers, the stresses and rewards of caregiving, and long-distance caregivers. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I'm really honored to be invited by Cancer Care and to be speaking with you all today on this critical topic, and it's really uh, especially um, heartening that, it's, that our talk today falls within the month of um, Family Caregiver Awareness Month and Lung Cancer Awareness Month. So um, I want to first just um, underscore that, um, just as Dr. Messner said, I am a, um, a researcher and faculty member at the Gilling School of Public Health at, at UNC in Chapel Hill. Although most of my work has focused on cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life and the impact that cancer has had on families, I am not a clinician. And so I do not have the experience providing direct medical or psychosocial care. Fortunately, today you do have two oncologists on the, on the phone who will be able to cover more aspects of cancer treatment. My role instead is today to, to tell you more about what research tells us about being a family caregiver for someone with lung cancer and, um, and other chronic conditions. Um, and let me just start by saying um, several surveys and interviews and stories abound about the impact that cancer can have on family and loved ones. And it is also true that many of these surveys have found that the number one concern of patients undergoing cancer treatment is their families. And by families, I mean their families of origin and their families of choice. And this just indicates how critically important it is that we pay attention to what matters most to cancer patients, in addition to caring for the patients themselves. So I want to first start with some terminology, um, because the term caregiver doesn't always resonate with everyone. So what we mean by a caregiver is um, someone who uh, helps take care of a person with cancer. So this might be a spouse or a partner, children, could be other relatives or friends, neighbors, or even coworkers. Caregivers are as caregivers do. They help people, they help their care recipients meet their day-to-day -day needs, what we often refer to as activities of daily living. So that includes basic tasks like feeding, dressing, bathing, and moving around, um, but it can also include instrumental tasks as, as how we refer to them, which are things like shopping for groceries, paying bills, and of course, socializing. Um, Tasks that caregivers can help with can also include what we call clinical care tasks or medical nursing tasks, um, very important in the context of cancer. So helping um, administer and organize medications, helping to change bandages and care for surgery wounds, um, helping with hygiene, port hygiene and catheter hygiene. Um, caregivers also help by accompanying their loved ones to medical appointments and communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and sometimes advocating for services. Now, 
a lot of people might not consider themselves a quote-unquote caregiver, um, as this isn't necessarily a term that resonates at all. Some people might think, well, I'm, you know, I'm just her husband, or, well, that's my mom. Um, but it is helpful for the research and healthcare community um, to use that term as, as, a, as a comprehensive term that catches um, all the important ways in which others might be impacted by cancer and how they are also part of that incredibly important care team. It's really difficult to estimate just how many people are serving as caregivers in the U.S. at a given time, and that's especially true for patients who have a specific disease like lung cancer. Um, and that's also because um, oftentimes caregivers are helping um, either helping care for many loved ones or they're helping um, loved ones with, that might have more than one um, health condition. Um, now, fortunately, the National Alliance for Caregiving, a, an organization that is dedicated to helping support caregivers, conducts a survey of caregivers um, in the U.S. about once every five years, and their most recent estimate just came out um, a couple of months ago, which was that approximately 53 million American adults are currently serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious medical condition. And we think that about our best estimates are about 3 million, now that's probably an underestimate, um, of those caregivers are caring for someone with cancer. So um, taking on the role of caregiver, it's, it's safe to say that there are thousands of people out there who fit this role um, of, of caring for someone with lung cancer, but there are also thousands more to come. Um, and uh, Rosalind Carter, the former first lady, um, actually set up a foundation dedicated to caregiving as well. And she's been famously quoted as saying, there are only four kinds of people in this world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. And we also know that there can be very um, challenging aspects of being a caregiver, um, particularly those who are helping provide care for a high number of hours per week or helping out with several of those, um, what I refer to as activities of daily living. We know that caregivers of cancer patients off, um, often report higher levels of emotional stress than caregivers of patients with other serious illnesses or disabilities. Cancer caregiving can be um, what we call more episodic. It sort of can come on fast, but then also not last as long, um, but also be more intense than caregiving for those with other, other kinds of health conditions, for example, like dementia or Alzheimer's. And it is also important to point out that not everyone reports that they feel like they had a choice in taking on this responsibility. Now, obligation and sense of purpose can go hand in hand, but we do know that perceiving of having no choice in the matter can lead to some caregivers feeling um, higher levels of stress and strain. So what that means for someone who's considering to become a caregiver is that choice and how you frame that choice does matter. And taking on a role like this um, needs to be viewed through the lens of adjustment. So if you are becoming a caregiver, if this is all new to you, it might be important to take some time to really process what's happening and what this might mean for other areas of your life and your routine. So setting and revisiting goals with your loved one is, is really important. And caregiving does not have to be, nor should it be, a singular endeavor. There are lots of ways to marshal support from additional family members and friends, and there are tools to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. So now more than ever, and especially in the setting of feeling any feelings of obligation or reluctance, it's time to activate that village. And I'll tell you a little bit more about some of those tools in a bit. Um, I also want to mention about what the research tells us about caregiving um, 
the, the, the sort of the positive aspects, positive and negative aspects, sort of the, the stresses and the sometimes unanticipated rewards. So we know that caregiving can, and of course cancer, can present many stressful situations. Um, and it is more common for us to talk about the hard parts, but it's also important to recognize and value the good parts. Um, you know, in sort of when people think about it and talk about it in um, everyday terms, um, you know, we often focus on the hard parts. And researchers are similar. We tend to research problems more than things that are going well. Um, and, I, and I do want to start with the stressors in order to help normalize them. Um, caregivers definitely report areas of physical, mental, emotional, financial, and work stress. And this can both be tied up in the shock of diagnosis and the uncertainty of an illness trajectory as time goes on, um, the sort of the cumulative stress of caregiving. And any sort of pre-existing stressors or vulnerabilities in a family that were there before cancer diagnosis can certainly get worse. But stressors, things that are stressful, should be differentiated from the stress response. So we can have a stressor that's external to us, and then that's followed by what we call appraisal or sort of how we assess the situation in the form of our thoughts and feelings. And then those move on to behaviors and habits, what we sort of do. And sometimes they can also move into, into our bodies and we can experience um, stress as a physical, a stressor as a physical symptom. But here's the thing. We all go through stress and coping cycles and, and we can actually vary how we respond to those stressors. We can, um, and I'll give you some options of how we can respond. So we can avoid, when we're possible, unnecessary stress. Sometimes avoidance is completely an option. We can do this by saying no more often. For example, avoiding people who stress you out. Um, we can try to shorten demands. We can also try to alter our situation. We can talk about rather than bottle up feelings. Um, and very importantly in the context of caregiving, we can ask for help. We can try to adapt to the stressor, we can reframe a problem, we can adjust standards, and we certainly can practice gratitude. And fortunately, next week, we have a, um, a national holiday that's all about gratitude. Um, we can accept the things we cannot change. Um, this entails, of course, letting go and also learning how to forgive. So um, my, my point about describing stressors is, is to help you normalize any feelings that you might have about the stress of caregiving. It's, it's, um, but it, here's the thing, caregiving is not necessarily stressful or, po or positive, it can be both, sometimes at the same time and sometimes at different times. So now I wanna talk about some of the benefits that can come with being a caregiver. And these can include, but are certainly not limited to acceptance, really sort of growing in um, and being able to become more resilient to what life sort of brings, empathy, um, increasing awareness and concern, not just for your care recipient, but for other human beings. Um, appreciation, sort of more awareness of the love and support from other people. Just family, that closeness that can come from bringing family together. And a positive self-view. So, so really seeing yourself as, as really the hero that you are as a caregiver. Um, and seeing yourself as that strong person, which can also help you cope more effectively. Um, finally, reprioritization, so really helping to identify true friends and a deeper sense of purpose. And all of these positive aspects can come out of caregiving for someone with lung cancer. Okay, so it's normal to feel like it's hard, but it's also important to reach out for help, as I've, I've mentioned. And we should think about support in a multidimensional way. So it's, um, it can be thought about in terms of what we call instrumental support or logistical support. So that can be things like um, 
preparing meals, so creating our, um, or accepting a meal train where, where, you know, people deliver meals to your doorstep, and that can be done, um, often that can be done in a very COVID-safe way. Um, emotional support, so um, asking for someone to just sit and talk to you on the phone is fine, um, or over, over Zoom if that's what you like to do. Or in some cases, um, a socially distanced walk can be, can be a way to go about that as well. But, but, but having someone listen to you and provide some companionship is really important. And in addition, um, if there is a situation that you're in where there's um, more than one caregiver um, around, what we sometimes call a network of carers with the patient at the center, and then the primary caregiver next, and then secondary carers to kind of help both provide support to the patient and the primary caregiver, that can be one of the more optimal situations. And in that situation, there are tools to kind of help organize that care. There are um, online um, software platforms um, that are um, often free um, that you can explore. Um, one is one that I know of is called CaringBridge, and another one is called Lots of Helping Hands. Um, but there are there are others, and they're increasingly more out there um, that I know that the the cancer care and longevity can point you towards. Um, and these kind of sites can help you create a list of tasks, schedules, and requests for help, and then email it out to people so that you don't have to take it all on yourself. Um, and now I want to talk a little bit about long-distance caregiving, um, because a lot of us now, I mean, anyway, um, before COVID, we're already doing a lot of long-distance caregiving. But now, even more so, you might be doing what might be considered long-distance caregiving, but still within the same city or locality as the person that you're caring for. Um, because of this pandemic. Um, so there are many ways to care for someone from afar. And yes, some of these strategies do rely on technology. So this is where technology can really be a boost for us. So um, tools like video conferencing through Zoom or Skype or FaceTime can be really helpful for sometimes attending um, healthcare visits, but also checking in with a loved one. Um, taking pictures and texting or emailing them of medicines to help answer questions. Um, setting up uh, home care or supportive services, whether it's formal and paid or informal. For example, like as I mentioned, using some of those tools to get people to bring over meals or maybe help with house or yard work. I mean, this is a time where all the leaves are falling and need to be raked or blown. So those are kinds of things that often um, secondary carers can help with. And that can be something that one can arrange even from afar. Um, and so I just want to say that in this increasingly busy world that we live in, instrumental support can actually really be a huge stress reliever. So if you are a distance carrier helping support someone that um, is close to your loved one with cancer, um, that's another way that you can help out not just that, that, that care recipient or, um, or the patient, but also their primary caregiver. So, um, so there's lots of different ways that we can all um, provide uh, help to one another even from afar. So um, thank you so much for listening, and I'm happy to provide for the resources if needed. And with that, I will hand it over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was a wonderful presentation and actually a wonderful, um, really, introduction to the entire call today. Lots of wonderful information. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our, our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Chow, and Dr. Chow is medical oncologist assistant attending Thoracic Oncology Service Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 
Dr. Chow will provide a brief update on the treatment of lung cancer in the context of COVID-19, the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team in the context of COVID-19, and helping to manage your loved one's treatment, the role of caregivers in adherence. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chow. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Carolyn and Cancer Care for organizing this valuable teleconference and for giving me the opportunity to share some insights uh, that I have on caring for lung cancer in the COVID-19 era. Um, so on the first topic, I just want to give a brief update on you know, how we changed some of our practices in, and thinking in treating lung cancer uh, in the COVID-19 era. Uh, as many of you know, taking care of patients with cancer is already quite an emotional, financial, and logistical challenge, and I think Dr. Kent uh, covered that very comprehensively, and uh, I learned quite a bit from her talk as well. In uh, many cases, um, taking care of uh, our patients with lung cancer uh, can approximate a full-time job. Uh, since COVID-19 hit New York this past spring, that job has only gotten harder for our patients and their caretakers. Uh, at my hospital, we've had to adjust substantial portions of our practice to make it as safe as possible to deliver care uh, to our patients. Across many reports, it does appear that patients with cancer in general have worse outcomes compared to patients without cancer as a comorbidity um, if they were to become infected with COVID-19. Although the data is variable, it does appear that lung cancer patients um, may in general have worse outcomes from COVID-19 compared to those with other types of cancer. I would say this is not entirely surprising due to the fact that many patients with lung cancer have a history of prior uh, tobacco use, which is an independent predictor of poor outcomes from COVID-19. The likely reason that prior tobacco use is associated with uh, worse outcomes is likely the lungs. Uh, to begin with, we're not in uh, great shape. And, and for example, a lot of our lung cancer patients have chronic illnesses such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, you can imagine that if you've had prior disease in the lung in general, you'll likely have less reserve when dealing with a respiratory bug like COVID-19. A major concern when we were first in the middle of the first wave of the epidemic in New York City was whether the treatments that we were delivering to our cancer patients might actually be uh, predisposing them to even worse outcomes. You know, could the chemotherapy, targeted therapies, and immunotherapies um, be actually causing harm to our patients and perhaps making them uh, have worse outcomes from COVID-19? Um, I would say that after quite a bit of study and a lot of reports coming from our center and many others around the world, um, the sort of silver lining is that uh, fortunately the answer appears to be no. Um, in general, it doesn't appear that the treatments that we traditionally utilize to treat cancer, um, you know, does, they don't make our patients more susceptible um, to uh, poor outcomes from COVID-19. Um, for example, perhaps surprisingly, um, it seems that when they looked at uh, our patients who were treated with cytotoxic chemotherapy, uh, which one would assume to be quite immunosuppressive, um, they found that those patients um, did not have worse outcomes uh, uh, if they 
um, uh, became diagnosed with COVID-19. And a similar, a similar findings were seen in our patients who were treated in the prior month with targeted therapies. These are treatments that are targeted specifically against uh, uh, cancer mutations or, or even in immunotherapies. Um, and also in our lung cancer patients, um, uh, who have had recent surgeries, um, there wasn't evidence that uh, those patients who had COVID-19 necessarily had worse outcomes. Um, from all of this data, I, I do want to underscore the point that, um, you know, while there are substantial logistical challenges in treating lung cancer uh, in the COVID-19 era, we should still aim to treat uh, unfortunately, many of my colleagues and I have noticed an increase of patients who uh, show up at the hospital for the first time, oftentimes inpatient, um, with probably more advanced disease, disease than we would typically in first encounter them. Um, you know, we would typically see patients in the office and work up their cancer. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that at least in the spring, um, when COVID-19 um, uh, was uh, quite widespread in New York City. A lot of patients, through no fault of their own, um, were presenting to care later. Um, so um, uh, I, I do just want to point to the recent data that says that we don't necessarily have to make a choice between treating the cancer or worrying about COVID-19. I think we can do both. Um, on the second topic of um, the role of the caregiver in communicating to the healthcare team in the context of COVID-19, I'm not sure that I have a unique message um, that's specific to COVID-19, um, but I do want to encourage caretakers, you know, to continue to communicate with the care team. Um, we, as the oncologists, often see the patients once every few weeks and only have a snapshot in time. You as the caregiver know the experience firsthand and oftentimes have a much better grasp of when things change uh, subtly. Um, for example, not that long ago, I had a patient um, who was 84 years old. Um, you know, she looked like most 80-year-olds that I would expect. Um, she had been receiving cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, I was actually covering my colleague. This was my colleague's patient. And it was the caretaker who pointed out that, uh, you know, she had declined quite a bit over the last few weeks, um, and she believed it was from the chemotherapy. Uh, apparently, this 80-year-old uh, patient previously was was a very active dancer, um, so she had a very high functional baseline. And for me, as someone covering, there's uh, no way I could have appreciated that. And um, it was only from the caregiver being able to tell me that uh, we decided to hold off on the chemotherapy at that point. And, you know, she was much better a few weeks later. Um, and I suppose in the era of COVID-19, especially as cases continue to rise uh, in New York City and elsewhere, uh, it's probably better to over-communicate rather than under-communicate because you as the caretaker have such a vital role in um, giving us a fuller picture of uh, how things are going at home. Um, and lastly, I want to uh, just briefly touch on, um, you know, the role of caregivers in treatment and follow-up adherence. Um, you know, I, I think along the lines of what I had just stated, um, you know, caregivers are an important second set of years. Um, oftentimes, uh, we have such a s small amount of time to overlap uh, with our patients and uh, convey uh, what we want to communicate with the patients. Uh, oftentimes, I find that uh, coming uh, with a caregiver uh, often helps because, um, 
those caregivers are able to serve as a second set of ears. Um, I remember uh, taking care of uh, a, a young man with uh, with cancer, very functional. Um, you know, had a very uh, had a rather high high profile job. So I assumed that, you know, anything that I communicated with him, uh, he would be able to retain process and adhere to. Um, and I distinctly remember some medication recommendations that I had made. Um, but the next time I saw him, it turns out that uh, he barely remembered our conversation. You know, he was uh, apologetic that, you know, uh, he didn't make the changes that we had discussed. But um, I completely don't blame him, you know, in the context of everything that goes on during active treatment for cancer. Um, it's a little hard for the patients to always, you know, be able to absorb everything um, that we try to communicate. And from that time forward, I've um, just been more diligent about um, keeping his wife on board uh, with the, uh, and any changes that we make because, you know, at home, she's just uh, uh, you know, able to serve as a second set of ears, but also uh, just a, as a reminder uh, sort of mechanism um, to help to make sure that we're on the same page. Um, and, and I would say that there's no way that a single conversation that I as a physician um, can have can have greater impact than the continued presence of a caretaker. Um, so with that, um, I'll wrap up my remarks, and I'm happy to take any questions during the question and answer period. Thank you so much, Dr. Chow. That was really outstanding and uh, very, very informative for our participants here. And also um, the way you, um, you know, stressed the importance of the caregiver, which is really um, very, very wonderful. So I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Um, and... Our next uh, speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Uh, Fleischman is going to address caregiving and social distancing, including we wearing masks in the context of COVID-19, the benefits of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and guiding guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and your list of questions. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all of the folks that are online today uh, trying to learn a little bit more or validate their experiences being a caregiver for someone uh, who's being treated for cancer. Um, being a caregiver these, in these days of the pan, coronavirus pandemic, and now we're in um, November of 2020, is still uh, a challenge on top of a challenge. All of the things that we hear about many, many times a day, as far as um, hand hygiene, using um, uh, the proper uh, cleaning gels and sanitizing gels before out, um, washing our hands more than a certain number of seconds with soap and water if we're close to a sink, um, keeping physical distance, or as some people call it, social distancing. Though I think we find that with telehealth and with uh, some of our devices, we can be socially close but physically distant. And of course, uh, wearing masks, even uh, the viral um, from someone else may certainly breathe them into the air, 
or actually um, if we uh, have no symptoms but we are just in the initial stages of uh, COVID infection, by stopping the mask can stop the bulk, but not all, of the particles uh, that we breathe out. So all of those things are critically important. In addition to everything you just heard from the other speakers about caring for someone uh, with lung cancer, which is difficult in itself. Um, and uh, all of us who have worked in the fields for years applaud uh, all of your caregivers for the, uh, not only the amount of things that you do, but the variability of the things you do um, and uh, many job descriptions and, and many different types of tasks and skills. Um, in particular, um, when it comes to lung cancer, there are some additional complications or additional factors just to keep in mind. Um, many people who have lung cancer have difficulty breathing, and yet they're asked to wear a mask if they go out of the house or if there are a number of other people in their house um, uh, wearing a mask with lung cancer may be one of those situations that makes it more difficult to breathe. This is an extremely controversial topic these days. But what I would do is make sure to have this discussion with your cancer treatment team and see uh, exactly uh, what is right for you. Um, different localities in the country have different laws and different regulations, but we're not talking about regulations. We're talking about what you actually can do to keep yourself safe, to keep others safe, but also breathe well. Being a caregiver means that um, you may have to handle some specialized treatments that are not only for patients with lung cancer, but are common, including a nebulizer treatment to open the airway passages, which uh, involves loading a machine with some um, medications and cartridges and using a, a special mask to give the treatment. Um, in, in addition to that, there may be oxygen that someone has. If you are the caregiver that is responsible for those things, please heed the warnings about um, using a mask, uh, using hand sanitizer, washing your hands, maybe even single-use gloves uh, to try to make sure that all of the devices um, and the air around somebody getting a nebulizer treatment or an oxygen is as COVID-free as possible. So despite all of those extra superimposed challenges of being a caregiver in these days of um, COVID-19, we actually see some uh, silver lining. Um, we spoke a little bit about um, hopping on to visits. If the patient uh, gets a telehealth visit from their, one of their providers, um, it was often difficult for a caregiver to actually join in, especially if they lived far away or they were working or they lived in another another city. Uh, now, it sort of doesn't make a difference where you are. <laughs> and if you're able to be available at a device at a time that the identified patient has an appointment, you can certainly uh, hop onto the call with everybody's approval. Sometimes that's on a regular phone, sometimes it's on a, a tablet or a computer or other video device, um, but your, your role is extremely important because you can be the eyes and the ears for that patient. We all know that being at the doctor's office, and especially now with telehealth visits, can be a little more cumbersome than usual. You can be uh, a recording pair of ears that actually hears what's said 
you can uh, prompt the individual for with questions if you've discussed all this in advance. And you can actually be very helpful after the call is over to review the information that's been uh, discussed and actually offer an opinion if you are the kind of caregiver that is intimately involved with the patient making uh, judgments and decisions about what's going to, what treatment may, they may need to get. So um, although there are many disadvantages, there are advantages, and the caregivers can play a very important role in decision-making, uh, something that they may not have been able to do before or didn't realize they could do before. Uh, telehealth visits are a challenge to all of us. Um, few of us are ex were experienced in telehealth visits beyond uh, confirmatory phone calls before um, last Feb this past February, and now we're all getting used to a new, a new uh, system. Uh, your physician or provider will make sure to make a decision about what is best for you. And if his or her judgment is that the risk of coming to an in-person visit um, is not, is not, is very high and you can be safer and the same um, tasks that would be done in the office could be handled on a telehealth visit or close enough to it to maintain safety. He or she will ask for a telehealth visit. It may be on a phone. It may be uh, through the hospital's medical record system, which sometimes has a telehealth option to use through the hospital's computer system. It may be on a separate outside system. If you're unfamiliar with these um, there are some things that you can do to prepare for the visit. You can make sure to confirm the appointment day and time, especially if you're being treated in another time zone. Clarify that time zone. Very important. Um, if, um, you're the, if it's the first time that you're using the system, uh, please speak with someone in the provider's office, sometimes an office manager, sometimes a receptionist, uh, whoever you can to schedule a dry run just to make sure you're able to connect or as they call hop on to the system or the platform that's being used for the call and it saves lots of time and lots of worry right around the time the visit is supposed to start. Uh, so do that in advance, be in a quiet place and a uh, place with good lighting in case something has to, something has to be observed as far as a, something on the skin or, or, or any kind of log that you're keeping. Uh, so a place that's quiet with good lighting and um, prepare the list of questions with the patient in advance that either the patient asks or you ask if you're given the permission to do so by the patient. And um, uh, all of that preparation will pay off in much more successful telehealth visits. There are certain things that just can't be accomplished on a telehealth visit, but we're getting better and better. If somebody is very short of breath, I've been able to tell that on a telehealth visit. Um, that without a stethoscope, just uh, just by listening. It's not as good as listening to lungs with a stethoscope, but sometimes it can be very healthy. So uh, in, in, in uh, conclusion, there are certain extra challenges, certain advantages, and certain extra tasks that are necessary in the era of lung cancer with telehealth, but they can be done, and um, 
it is sometimes uh, gratifying to know that you can really contribute meaningfully to someone's care, even if you're in another place and in another time zone, or if you're down the block. So with that, I'll turn it back to, over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really very helpful, and and it is very um, you know reassuring, I think, to the caregivers on the line to know that. It's being on a call with somebody on a telehealth visit with the patient's permission, of course, um, it's really helpful um, to to be to be there with them. It's um, some people do prefer, of course, to be on the call by themselves, but many appreciate having someone on the call, and particularly as as Dr. Fleischman pointed out, for people who are far away, or even it's true down the block and be far away in our world today, or even across town in the same city, um, in an urban area, or even in a rural area, it could be quite a far distance, but to be able to be on the phone and to be able to help, that can be extraordinarily helpful. So um, that support is really great as well. So thank you. Thanks, Dr. Fleischman. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn, and Ms. Flynn is an oncology nurse. She's a nurse practitioner, nursing research and translational science, clinical center nursing department. National Institute of Institutes of Health Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is going to be addressing managing family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19, including social distancing and wearing masks, coping with holidays, and we certainly have a lot of holidays coming up. This is really the beginning of the holiday season when you think about it. Um, holidays, birthdays, and special occasions in the context of COVID-19, and coping with the stress of caregiving and self-care tips. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. Oh, thank you, Dr. Messner, for the invitation to be a part of today's esteemed panel. And I would like to warmly welcome all of our caregivers and lung cancer survivors on today's call. So I'm going to start first with managing friends and family that might pop by um, as we're heading into the holiday season. And you as the caregiver are now the new gatekeeper for anyone coming into your home um, or when you and your loved one are leaving your home for medical appointments and errands. You're the gatekeeper. You're the person screening um, for, um, for keeping yourself safe and your loved ones safe during these COVID times. And so first I want to um, ask you, um, are you washing your hands? Um, do you have hand sanitizer um, close by? We know that washing our hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds is the best way that we can um, tamp down any infections um, such as COVID or the flu. Um, and if you're not near soap and water, hand sanitizer with at least an 70% alcohol content is a, a way to reduce your risk of becoming sick. And so anyone entering your home, um, whether they're expected or unexpected, you might want to keep a hand sanitizer by your door and a cloth mask to put over yourself, um, over covering your nose and your mouth, um, so that you can talk to people, keeping that social distance, um, to um, let them know how your loved one is doing or if it's a holiday where people are coming um, into your house, um, you want to know what your local regulations are. What are the recommendations that your local government are giving you? I know that um, this is an international call, and so there might be um, stricter measures in some areas, some areas and looser in others. So it's important for you to know what's happening in your local area. 
Um, but you still want to screen people to make sure that they don't have um, COVID or the flu or, you know, some other illness that might make um, you, um, your loved one with cancer or other people sick during that um, family event. And so if someone has a fever, um, if they have a cough, they feel short of breath, if they have fatigue, if they have body aches, a headache, if they have a new loss of taste or smell, a sore throat, um, if they have congestion or runny nose, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, you might want to ask them to come back at another time when they're feeling better. Um, all of these symptoms are listed on the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, and they're also on the World Health Organization, or the WHO, um, which are great sources for learning more about COVID-19. And so as we move into talking about holidays, um, birthdays, and special occasions, um, they become more precious traditions um, when someone is facing a serious illness. But even in the best of times, these events can be stressful let alone when you might be juggling the new diagnosis of cancer, maybe multiple medical appointments, and treatment regimen. So I have a few tips for you. First, there's no right way to celebrate. This is the time that we're all being creative and thinking of new ways to modify our holiday celebrations to incorporate everybody in our family and our friends. So maybe in the past we went ice skating or we played football in the backyard. Um, that was always the family tradition. But now um, maybe we can't travel across the country um, to get together with one another. And so we have to think of a new way to celebrate that family football game. Maybe it's playing an online game together where we're all getting on a video call and we're playing a board game. Or maybe we're playing charades. Um, or maybe we're just celebrating with um, having dessert all together after a family meal in separate locations. Um, we want to focus on what's important to our loved one and how to incorporate that love and support of family and friends into the holiday or the celebration. So we need to ask ourselves, what can realistically be done? Um, even if you're hosting a family event, can you realistically clean your house and cook all the meals? Um, Now's the time to ask for help. Maybe everybody can bring a dish. Um, maybe you can ask some friends to come over and help you um, get your house into order. Um, think about what can realistically be tackled and, and tap into your support system. And respect your loved one's decision. Remember that this experience is unique to them. And without their input, maybe too many activities might be overwhelming. And so have that conversation um, with your loved one about how they would like to celebrate the upcoming holidays and celebrations. Um, maybe five-hour video call is too much. I know that would be too much for me, but for my husband, that would be perfect for him. Um, so ask um, what is more manageable. Is it a 15-minute call um, with everybody um, wishing a happy new year, or is it maybe multiple calls spread out over a two-week period? Don't forget to ask your healthcare provider about special medical concerns that might impact the ability to celebrate. Um, and this is true whether your loved one is in the hospital or if they're at home with you. Your medical team can suggest ways 
um, for your loved one to more fully participate in that celebration. And if you have certain holiday traditions that involve fasting or eating meals at designated times, be sure to let your health care provider know this. Um, it might not be safe to fast while you're receiving certain kinds of treatment for your lung cancer or if you have diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, so your healthcare team is happy to work with you so that you can participate um, in that holiday celebration, but in a safe manner. And due to COVID restrictions, some family and friends may not um, be physically able to, to visit you. Um, and maybe they haven't been able to physically visit you or have a video chat with you for quite a while. And so as the caregiver, you might need to prepare um, family members for a change in your loved one's appearance. Um, for some lung cancer treatments, it may result in their hair thinning or falling out. Um, they may have a new rash. They might be on oxygen um, or need nebulizer treatments. And so you know your family and friends best. Um, if you need to prepare them, um, especially younger members. Um, I always say don't forget those teenagers um, that are, fall between, they think they're adults, but they're not quite adults yet, um, that they might need um, a phone call ahead of time just to say, um, you know, a, a conversation about either their father, grandfather, grandmother, um, aunt, uncle, about those physical changes. And um, I want you as the caregiver to say yes to scheduling some self-care time. This is especially important during the holiday busyness. We get caught up in the holidays and then we find ourselves exhausted. So I want you to remember to schedule some breaks for rest and meditation and ways to rejuvenate yourself. And um, some of those tips uh, can start with looking into counseling services in addition to scheduling breaks for yourself. Um, everyone needs someone to talk to. And sometimes this is a close friend or family member, and sometimes this is a professional. Um, this is an extremely stressful period that you're going through. And sometimes caregivers feel like they need to shield or protect their loved one from stress, anxiety, and worry. So talking to a professional counselor like the teams at Cancer Care and other social workers can help relieve the stress of caregiving, um, giving yourself permission to talk about your own needs as the caregiver, getting your questions answered, um, and hearing your concerns. Um, we want you to be emotionally fit um, to help you with the stress of caregiving. And so some other strategies that I have um, is a stay calm strategy. Um, having a loved one with a serious illness, we know that there's going to be some ups and downs. And during those um, difficult times, um, they're unavoidable. So to prepare for those moments, to have a strategy where you can just go, um, give yourself a couple moments to decrease your anxiety, to let those feelings of being overwhelmed just wash away. And so that involves having a place, a private place where you can go and just um, – release that anxiety. You might want to consider in that place just doing a breathing exercise, maybe repeating a mantra, an affirmation, or a prayer. Maybe it's just closing your eyes and sitting in silence for a couple moments. Maybe it's standing up and stretching or taking a, a quick walk outside or giving a close family member a call. So setting aside those times 
um, for you to unwind is also important. And when I talk to caregivers, I say um, taking time out for yourself doesn't mean waiting in line picking up a prescription. That is definitely not a way that we can unwind. Um, Think about picking up that hobby that maybe you put aside um, for the past couple months. Um, maybe focusing on your pet is a way for you to relax. Taking a bath, lighting a candle, watching a movie, reading a book. Um, I just had a friend um, tell me about a virtual tour that she took of a city that she always wanted to visit. And now that we're all in COVID times, um, many cities around the world and museums are posting virtual tours. And she just had a, a great escape. It was like going on vacation for 20 minutes when she visited this city. So give yourself permission to explore those um, alternate uh, stress-relieving activities. Give yourself permission to smile, to laugh, to have fun, because you as the caregiver are important. And I want to remind you to keep up with kind of the basics. So don't forget um, to exercise, to get sleep with a goal of 68, six to eight hours a night, um, making sure that you're drinking plenty of water and not skimping on those fruits and vegetables, and most of all, showing compassion for yourself. Also want to remind you to keep up with your doctor's appointments. As one of our speakers talked about earlier, it's a full-time job being a caregiver um, for your loved one, but we also don't want you to skip out on those doctor's appointments. You are important. And not to be afraid to ask for help. Um, I share the story of my good friend when I was in a serious accident about a year ago, and my good friend jumped in to be the spokesperson, the communicator for my family and friends. My husband, who's my caregiver at that time, was just overwhelmed. And so having a family friend answer those questions, send out the emails, make sure that groceries and meals were, were coming in was very, very important. So don't forget to ask for help. And finally, I just want to say to our caregivers and patients, you are not alone and you are important. Um, there are networks like Cancer Care to support both the caregiver and our patients going through this often difficult journey. So thank you for being t on today's call. Remember that you can do this. Um, just reach out and, and ask for help. And so with that, I'll turn that over back to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lynn, for such a wonderfully comprehensive presentation and lots of tips for caregivers and, and very well received. Thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Nicole Ventrica, and uh, Ms. Ventrica will be is from the Longevity Foundation. She is Support Services Manager, Patient Navigator with Longevity Foundation, who have been really instrumental in making today's program possible. And I just she will be addressing Longevity Foundation's three programs and services, um, including their helpline and their website as well. But I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ventrica. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As the field of lung cancer research and patient care advances rapidly, more people are now living well with lung cancer than ever before. Longevity is proud of its impact on improving outcomes for lung cancer patients through a better understanding of diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life, as well as through driving research and policy reform. Being a caregiver is both rewarding and challenging. Care caregivers 
willingly and selflessly devote their time to care for their loved ones battling lung cancer. However, it's all too easy to neglect themselves at the same time. That's why there are resources available to help caregivers take care of their loved ones as well as themselves. At Longevity, you will find ways to ask for help from family members and friends, get support from other caregivers, and get help and advice with end-of-life issues. I'd just like to share four of Longevity's national resources for caregivers that are impacted by lung cancer. We have a Lifeline Support Program. Through our Lifeline Support Program, we offer personalized one-on-one support by matching caregivers to mentors who have similar experiences. We also have an online message board and Facebook group. Our message board has over 450,000 posts, which is called the Lung Cancer Support Community, where there are caregiver-specific forums and topics where family members and caregivers can explore for peer support. Our Facebook groups also have uh, caregivers that come on there and can talk one-on-one and connect with each other. And we also have a helpline, which um, it can answer your questions. It's toll-free, personalized support for patients and caregivers at any time along the lung cancer journey. Our oncology social excuse me, social workers are available to help you manage emotional, financial, and support challenges. And they can be reached at 844 360-5864, and you can also get referrals for financial assistance if needed, um, including pain medication, home care, child care, medical supplies, transportation, and copayment assistance through that line as well. And finally, you can also visit our website. It is www.longevity. Dot org, and longevity is spelled L-U-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y, and you can click on our Caregiver Resource Center where you will find dedicated websites for lung cancer caregivers. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions specific to lung cancer caregivers in need of support. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner and my esteemed colleagues for this great opportunity to connect today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Centrica. That was wonderful. And what a wonderful resource the Longevity Foundation is for everyone on the call today. So please, if you haven't taken advantage of it, um, and you're going to, at the end of the program, you'll be getting all the resources that we mentioned, and you'll be getting these phone numbers and, um, and uh, websites. You can contact them as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle. Um, Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker. He's director of social service, Long Island, lung cancer program coordinator of the cancer care. And he will be addressing cancer care's free programs and services. And, um, and he'll be addressing both our Hope Line and our website and other services as well. I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Burkle. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, 
Founded in 1944, Cancer Care is a leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial cha- challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include regional counseling and support groups, professionally facilitated online national support groups, educational workshops similar to today's uh, event, publications, and limited financial assistance. Cancer Care Support Services are provided by its professionally trained, experienced oncology social workers who are always pleased to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. If you're interested in learning even more about the services Cancer Care offers, we encourage you to call the Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673. That number again for the Hope Line, one 800 813-4673. Thank you, be well, and be safe. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Burkle, for that excellent presentation, and um, uh, thank you so much. And um, now, before we take questions from our participants, I'm just going to ask you just a few more questions, and then we're going to go right into the um, questions um, that you have. Um, and so... Uh, Our first question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team in the context of COVID-19, and it's either yes or no, and I'll repeat this. As a result of this workshop, I better understand the important role of the caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team in the context of COVID-19, yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand what research tells us about caregivers. Again, either yes or no. Two more questions. The next question, Um, as a result of this workshop, I am better prepared to cope with the challenges of managing family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19, including social distancing and wearing masks, either yes or no. And the final last question, as a result of this workshop, I am better prepared with self-care tips to cope with the stresses of caregiving. Again, as a result of this workshop, I am better prepared with self-care tips to cope with the stresses of caregiving, yes or no. I want to thank you all for your participation in this in our uh, these questions. It helps us to get a sense of um, 
perhaps some things that you've learned in the program, so that's very helpful to us. And we now have time for questions for our participants. So I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So, Michelle. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So the question from one of our participants, um, and uh, I'm going to ask, let's see, Dr. Um, Chow, if you could address this to begin with. Shouldn't you not allow people into your house at all? It's an enclosed space, so it seems not safe. Could you comment on that, Dr. Chow? Yeah, sure, yeah. I I think I'll say generally, um, I think it's hard to uh, have one hard and fast rule for everyone because um, all of our patients are in different circumstances. Um, I think if one is able to isolate in such a way that there is no sort of um, exposure to, say, um, you know, elderly uh, elderly folks or kids who are in school um, while one is receiving treatment for cancer. Um, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that, and I think um, that could be something to strive for. Um, but, you know, I take care of a lot of patients in New York City, and oftentimes our patients don't necessarily have that luxury. Um, And as a result, I think it's hard for me to say uh, with certainty and that this is the right solution for everyone to try to restrict any exposures as much as possible because that's just not realistic for a lot of our patients. Uh, And with that said, I will also say that with proper precautions, um, I, I think it's uh, possible to really reduce the chance of COVID infection. Um, you know, um, things such as social distancing, practices such as social distancing and wearing masks when uh, we're within six feet of other people um, and, you know, uh, proper hand hygiene. Uh, I, I think all of those go a really far away in doing a substantial amount of reducing the chance of uh, uh, getting COVID. So, um, yeah, I, I guess those are some of my preliminary thoughts. I think everyone will have, uh, will in discussion with their family and their uh, medical providers, perhaps come to um, more uh, person-specific uh, recommendations and what works for them. But uh, those are sort of some of my thoughts on the subject. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so for Dr. Fleischman, how much research on our patient's condition is helpful? When is when is it too much? So I I think I understand the context of the question. Uh those of us who work in academic uh cancer centers who um do clinical trials, meaning that we have research studies that look at treatments um in development. Uh, and uh, I have heard over the years, having worked in uh, academic centers my whole career, is that some patients feel overwhelmed by all of the clinical trials that they're asked to participate in. 
Um, this is, in my experience, a phenomenon maybe only about of the last 15 20 years because the consent process is so much more complicated and lengthy. And despite uh, the Paperwork Reduction Act, we have more and more paper to read as the years go by. So um, if any of you feel that you're being asked to participate um, in um, more uh, clinical trials than you're able to actually do, please discuss it with your care team they can help prioritize and uh, with you and your family figure out not only the studies that are the most important for you, but what your tolerance is to uh, all of the things that happen in a study. A lot, many more visits often happen in studies. Care is um, um, much more scrutinized than a standard care, and sometimes there's just a certain amount you can do. So speak with the team. But yes, this is something that has developed over the years that seems kind of ironic, but it's just a reflection of uh, advances and um, the uh, level of real interest in making cancer care as good as it can be. Excellent. And um, we have another question of one of our uh, one of our participants. Um, and uh, Dr. Kent, if you, I mean, Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. Um, Dr. Chow, if you could address this question. My husband's oncologist will not do virtual appointments. We were astounded at this in this day and age. They understood when we canceled his follow-up appointment today but offered no alternative. My husband is currently undergoing immunotherapy. What would your suggestion be in this case? Um, I, I think uh, I, I talk in general. Uh, I, I do think that most practices are offering some version of a video encounter, um, in particular to uh, help uh, re reduce the risk that our patients can um, become infected with COVID-19. Uh, and at our center, we've done a lot more um, uh, te uh, televisits. And I, I think uh, in general, uh, it, it's new, it's different, uh, but um, I think we're uh, uh, covering a lot of ground with it and I think able to provide care safely and, uh, and optimally in this uh, change setting. Um, for your specific scenario, um, I, I would have a conversation perhaps with your provider and see if uh, they could recommend um, uh, obtaining care um, with another provider who might be able to provide a telehealth or televideo visit um, in order to uh, continue care. Uh, I, I think I should mention that there are moments that, and in different uh, patient scenarios, it, it makes sense to for the physician to really see the patient, particularly if there are very active symptoms or medicines are changing quite uh, frequently. And I, I think to each oncologist and each patient um, that there's a balance there and they may come to different solutions. But um, if, uh, you know, the decision is that it's not so important or uh, at this moment uh, it doesn't make so, so much sense for the oncologist to physically see the patient and it's just more of a sort of technological barrier, um, I, I would discuss with the oncologist's office about exploring um, perhaps transfer of care options, um, you know, to see if uh, other safe options are available. Does anyone else want to add to that? Or? Yeah, I'll just uh, say that uh, 
this comes up periodically, it's possible that the physician, him or herself, is in a high-risk category, um, and indeed having a colleague actually uh, pitch in to do the telehealth visit is not often different from vacation coverage when people go away on vacation. So uh, if they're not comfortable on the phone, write an email or a note or, or speak with the office manager. Well, that's a good. That's an okay. These are all very helpful suggestions. We hope this helps, um, um, and uh, and certainly, um, uh, I hope these are these are helpful to you. I right, please call Cancer Care if you continue. If this doesn't, if you have more questions, I'm sure um, our oncology social work staff would be happy to help as well. Which is a troubleshooter. Think this through, um, and then. Um, So this is an interesting question. Um, how? So this is. I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you could address this. How safe is it to get a home health aid for my sister during this pandemic? I'm worried for her, and she will need assistance. But I live far away, and cannot come and take care of her. Okay, great um, question. Um, be aware that home health. AIDS are often found through different mechanisms. There are certified home health agencies, sometimes called CHAS because of the abbreviations, and part of the certification that those agencies have is to make sure that everybody is healthy and able to provide high-quality care to their standards. Some home health aides can be employed through an employment agency, and depending upon the state in which you live, the regulations that cover those are very different. Um, so uh, there may be less scrutiny and less oversight. Maybe. Don't know. Um, some of them are excellent, but it varies from place to place. The third way to find a home health aide is just by word of mouth, someone in the family needed a home health aide in the past, and they still have their number. And it's very hard to um, uh, to ask of the real important questions about health status and all that. Um, if, if you go that route, it may be fine. You don't know. But um, probably the best thing to do is really consider how you're finding this individual and who's checking them to make sure that they're healthy and able and competent to come into your home. Excellent. Thank you. And this will be the last question and uh, for Ms. Flynn. My father has just been diagnosed. I'm not sure where to start. Any suggestions? What a great question. And um, I I'm sure you're feeling a bit overwhelmed at this time. And, and who wouldn't be? There are um, lots of great resources out there. I would um, tell you first, just take a deep breath. Um, and then um, if you go to the National Cancer Institute, they have um, uh, a guide um, talking about patients when they're first diagnosed um, and questions to ask. There's lots of um, booklets out there, but I would um, implore you to look at, the, look at the, um, the one from the National Cancer Institute. I'm sure Longevity and Cancer Care also have a similar booklet. And... Don't read the whole thing overnight. Take it page by page. Um, but it sets out a plan of care of um, what is your primary plan for appointments, 
um, for medications, for insurance. And it, it's really a, these booklets are great because it kind of walks you through step by step um, what considerations um, that you need to just kind of plan for. Um, so I would, I would definitely start there. Um, know that you're learning a new language with cancer treatment and cancers um, has its own language. Um, and so give yourself time as if you were learning French or Spanish. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so start with a booklet. Start with asking questions. Um, having a journal to write down your questions um, I find extremely helpful. Um, what I tell people not to do is go on the Internet and read everything possible that you can um, about lung cancer. Um, it's too overwhelming. Start with one resource, um, aim towards caregivers, and then go from there. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Venturk, do you want to add anything in terms of Longevity Foundation's helpline? or want to comment on that as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned with some of our resources, we do have the Caregiver Resource Center on our website as well as a Survivor Resource Center. And we do have links to um, questions to ask of your doctor and um, also the helpline, which has oncology, social workers, staffed ready to answer any of those um, emotional, financial, and support challenges for you. Excellent. Wow. This has been a fantastic call, I have to say. Um, we could go on much longer, but we said this would be an hour program, and we did run over a bit. So um, thank you all for staying with us. Um, and I'm going to start to wrap up the program. I want to first of all thank our speakers who have been phenomenal. And I also want to thank all our participants who asked us really great questions that really enabled us to actually, you know, further elaborate on issues and concerns of yours, which would actually be their own program in and of themselves. And I do also want to remind all of you that, that um, I know many of you still have questions in, in queue, and, and for those of you who asked questions, we want you to take all the information you learned today and go back to your treating healthcare team with your questions. And we hope that you'll go back to your treating healthcare team with a greater sense of perhaps confidence in asking your questions, more information to ask your, your, about your questions, and how they apply to you, what would be best for you. And we are also going to provide you, you're all going to get a, a survey monkey evaluation at the end of the program today, and in there will be all sorts of resources that we mentioned during the program today. So in terms of the Longevity Foundation and all the other resources we mentioned that would be helpful to you in in getting, you know, getting a sense of more information, but that's information that's really tailored and helpful to you to, um, to get. Um, I do want to um, also suggest, of course, that you always can call the Longevity Foundation or Cancer Care um, because we have specific staff to, such workers to help with your questions and we can help to direct you to any resources you might need. Also, we are, of course, approaching a holiday season and we also um, many of you also may feel a little bit more alone than usual at this time of the year. I do want to remind all of you that that's a normal feeling to have, but please know that many there is lots of support for you, a lot of organizations out there that are free and offering you support, Longevity Foundation, Cancer Care, and there are many others, and we would guide you to them um, in terms of any of the services that you might need or that you might call for. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect.
everyone. Have a great day.